In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. It has been 14 months since we published our very first episode, Chemical Imbalance. If you've not listened to episode number one, we highly encourage you to go back and listen. On July 20th, 2022, a review was published in the Journal of Molecular Psychiatry. This review compiled 30 years of research into serotonin and depression. On today's podcast, we discuss this research and its implications. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. Dr. Roger McFillin here with my brother, Sean. Kelly is on vacation. Good morning, Sean. We're allowed vacations? <laughs> <laughs> Only Kelly. Okay. <laughs> well, we kind of want to get in the studio and address some recent events within the, the field of psychiatry and, and psychology that has certainly kind of taken the, the world by storm because it has hit, uh, you know, international news media. And it's ironic because the very first podcast that we recorded was on this very subject. We thought it was that valuable and that important. It was the around the chemical imbalance myth. And uh, when we first recorded that podcast, many people um, would have been surprised to hear these ideas that uh, depression, for example, is not related to low serotonin in the brain. And uh, therefore, everything that we believe antidepressants to do as far as correcting that low serotonin in the brain is inaccurate. And we've been led to believe through very systematic and targeted pharmaceutical marketing campaigns to have us believe that what we experience, what we feel is related to an underlying brain abnormality or an illness. And uh, in a recent review article in molecular psychiatry june july 20th came out yep very recent uh dr joanna moncrief and colleagues published this systematic review the serotonin theory of depression a systematic umbrella review of the evidence Anyone who wants to get into the nitty-gritty details of such review, um, feel free to. I think for our purposes today, we just want to uh, go over the highlights. Um, very simply, you know, the idea that depression is a result of abnormalities in brain chemicals, in particular serotonin, has been influential for decades and, and provides important justification for the use of antidepressants. But what has the actual literature revealed? And so when, Sean, when we were recording this podcast back in 2021, June 2021, About probably? Four, 14 months ago. Yeah, 14 months ago. I just got finished with my own review mm -hmm. and uh, was surprised. Well, not necessarily surprised, but um, I was certainly shocked about how there was really no evidence at all. Um, and we're all kind of subjected to uh, media manipulation of, of ideas. 
And when I, I knew very clearly that this was a, uh, you know, a theory that was never supported by evidence, it became very important for us to be able to just start communicating that, that message. And for me, what was most concerning, and forget about the efficacy of antidepressants or any of the other effects, the mm-hmm. withdrawal effects, the, the side effects, the long-term impairment that exists from prolonged use. What I was most concerned about was the, the psychological aspect of believing that there is something wrong with your brain. Yes. Because everything I know about the, the field of psychology and, and attempting to cope and, and live well really reflects some core principles in how to you know, up, approach the, uh, the experiences of, of just being human. Mm-hmm. And one of them is the idea that our, that our emotions um, are there to serve us. And when we feel something and we're experiencing something, um, it is something to be paid attention to because it is our body reacting to events that occur in our life. Now, those events could be outside of us or they could be internal, just our own thoughts, our own, our own memories. And using those emotions to our benefit is part of a very important adaptation process. So I was very concerned and always have been concerned about what happens then when you are led to believe that what you are thinking or feeling is different than somebody else, mm-hmm. that there's something that you're broken in some way that, it, that it's an illness. And you'll never know if it was ever fixed or could be fixed. Yeah. That's, that's, I would imagine that's extremely challenging and difficult for someone to be in that position when you're told you're broken and you have to do this for the rest of your life. Not only that, you have to really put trust into a physician who might only sit down with you for, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, mm-hmm. you know, if that, and uh, just accept that these are, these are scientific, uh, advancements and uh you know there's clear validity to some of the recommendations that are that are being made and so that's a lot of trust right here take this pharmaceutical take this pill and you're going to feel better but over 30 plus years we've learned that um you know most people don't feel better and a lot get much much worse mm-hmm. so where do things go from here um and what are our next steps when it's clear now that this has been disputed scientifically? I feel, I feel like it had been disputed scientifically for quite some time in a very small niche of the psychiatry and psychological community of those that were understanding the science. And it took this paper to take all of the research that existed, compile it into one concise statement that would finally say that that hypothesis for which antidepressants were originally marketed under is not true. Therefore, we need to investigate further. It's, it's basically, for me, it was an if-then statement, right? And that's how I interpreted it. So I, I don't know if we actually said what the results were. We just kind of were going through the history of it. Can you can you reveal what the study, um, what the final statement was for this umbrella review? Sure. Um, basically, the main areas of serotonin research provide no consistent evidence of there being an association between serotonin and depression. 
and no support for the hypothesis that depression is caused by lower serotonin activity or concentration. Some evidence was consistent with the possibility that long-term antidepressant use actually reduces serotonin concentration. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think anyone argues um, or will support the idea that depression is related to one neurochemical like serotonin. But I think we'd all be concerned about what would happen for long-term use um, if you're unable to produce serotonin. So this this adaptation process of the brain, when you impact its own ability to uh, produce a, a neurochemical. So we're certainly experimenting with such a complex organ, the brain. What does then happen for prolonged use? And Sean, we're at a point now where even though the majority of these studies were very short term, definitely under 24 weeks, most eight to 16 weeks, Mm -hmm. We now have people on antidepressants for 10, 15 years or more. Multiple medications, which the combination of has never been uh, studied. Never studied. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of this is going to be shocking to many people. I remember when we recorded the first episode in here, this was all new to me. I believed it to be true. I thought you were crazy. <laughs> and my approach in this room was to try and balance out many of the conversations and make sure what was being said was, was factual or at least debate with you a little bit so I could continue to learn and thereby others that were listening could learn as well. And uh, I look back now 14 months ago and I realized that um, you're right. It was, it was a marketing campaign. Well, there's very good reason that you would have believed that and thought I was the crazy one because of direct-to-consumer marketing that really started in the 1990s. If uh, we, we had this, we, we played one of the commercials. Oh, I, I pulled it up. So we can, we can listen to it again because uh, the language in there. And, and I always like to listen to the words that they use specifically, right? Because people hear what they want to hear and they believe it to be true. But I worked in advertising and we chose words very carefully so that we would never ever get into legal trouble. <laughs> yeah. So here, I'm going to play this. Uh, let's take a listen. It's about a minute long. You know, when you feel the weight of sadness, you may feel exhausted, hopeless and anxious. Whatever you do, you feel lonely and don't enjoy the things you once loved. Things just don't feel like they used to. These are some symptoms of depression, a serious medical condition affecting over 20 million Americans. While the cause is unknown, depression may be related to an imbalance of natural chemicals between nerve cells in the brain. Prescription Zoloft works to correct this imbalance. You just shouldn't have to feel this way anymore. Only your doctor can diagnose depression. Zoloft is not for everyone. People taking MAOIs or Pemazide shouldn't take Zoloft. Side effects may include dry mouth insomnia, sexual side effects, diarrhea, nausea, and sleepiness. Zoloft is not habit-forming. Talk to your doctor about Zoloft, the number one prescribed brand of its kind. Zoloft, when you know more about what's wrong, you can help make it right. Well, there's the reason, right? <laughs> and uh, so what I started doing over this past, I guess, year and a half, is I wanted to ask people, would you have taken an antidepressant drug if you were told that there is no such thing as a chemical imbalance. We have no evidence that depression is associated with diminished serotonin. 
We have no evidence that you have lower serotonin. And we have no idea what is going to happen to you long term. <laughs> Would I? Absolutely not. So, no. So, <laughs> so I ask questions like that to, to people I know and pose those questions on Twitter. Mm-hmm. 100%. You know, people come back, no, I would not have taken this drug. Follow-up question is always, were you communicated to by your doctor that this drug corrects an underlying chemical or imbalance or was it communicated to you in some way that you may have a chemical imbalance? And the question is for a large, the answer was for a large majority, absolutely yes. Mm -hmm. So even though we didn't have the evidence, Sean, doctors were still communicating this to patients because of a very, very targeted marketing campaign to physicians themselves with pharmaceutical salespeople in the offices Doctors were led to believe that this drug does correct an underlying chemical abnormality. And many, to this day, are still communicating the same message. Mm-hmm. If they are not in this field, primary care physicians, we're looking at close to 80% of these drugs being prescribed by primary care physicians. They're certainly not reading the literature in psychiatry on depression. They're probably not listening to the Radically Genuine podcast they don't have patients in their office every day. They are just following protocols. And they also have a, a broad knowledge base. So take everything in the medical field. If you're a primary care p- physician or like a pediatrician, you have to understand what's happening in so many areas. So you rely upon the expertise of those that are providing literature to you in summary form so you can clearly read, digest, understand, repeat. So you... You probably got an email from me uh, this week and actually sent it out to the entire staff. I, I got just... like 12 emails. <laughs> Today was what, or this weekend was a weekend where I was obsessively focused on this subject Yeah, because I have plans. You know, I have, I have ideas. I, I think we have to, actually, I think I have a responsibility to contribute more. Mm-hmm. And one of those areas that I think I need to contribute more is uh, the providing people informed consent. Mm-hmm. And I have to have a very extensive then knowledge of the literature base if I'm going to construct something to be able to make an impact in this area. So I'm going to have to say I went through 50 plus papers on antidepressants for both adolescents and, and adults, teens, adolescents, and adults. Mm-hmm. For the most part, they're, they're in, the, in the past uh, decade. But when you read a scientific paper, you kind of you can go down the rabbit hole because you know each scientific paper might have fifty citations. Yes. So then you might just check out the citations in there. Yes. And boy, did I have a headache. <laughs> I mean, it was it was rough. Um, because because you want to know how how did we get to this point? Because prescriptions are on the rise. It's not like they're declining. They're actually on the rise each year. The pharmaceutical industry is going to improve their customer base for psychiatric drugs. Especially when they tell people they don't have, they can't go off of them. So well, then you're like, got that one moving on to the next group. That's a really good point because I didn't want to make sure that I, uh, I missed this because it's really important, mm-hmm. especially from a safety uh, perspective. This evidence has been widely distributed and is part of now the mainstream media here in the United States, which we'll get to in a second. Okay. But it is c- 
critically important to know that if you are taking antidepressants and you are listening to this podcast or you read this study or you watched it on some news channel, do not abruptly stop your medications. Yes. It could be deadly. Mm -hmm. And we now know that there is dependency. And once you start these drugs, if you abruptly start, stop them, there'll be a withdrawal reaction. And for some people, the withdrawal reactions are very severe, mm -hmm. including uh, increased suicidality, um, agitation, sleep or insomnia, a number of things. It's just a very, very dangerous process. So consult your prescriber. And if you are interested in starting to taper off these drugs, you're going to want to do it in a very safe, science-based way. So don't just stop it, yeah. um, especially for these people out there who have been on this drug for quite some time. Because this umbrella review did not look into antidepressants. It was only looking at the causality effect of serotonin levels and depression. Yeah. That's that needs to be like That's really it. clearly communicated yeah. because it, in the media it's getting misinterpreted and of course um, everybody's running in different directions with what they the interpretation. Yeah, I think it's simply this: a lot of people went on antidepressants because it's influential because of the chemical imbalance theory. That's what they were led to believe. Yeah. So once people learn that there is no serotonin deficiency, in fact, some people. You know, have more. Yeah, their or, levels can be up and down. Yeah, in my guess, it depends on when you're getting the test, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, like my guess is maybe if you did some of the things that we were talking about. Like you're in the morning. Yeah. And uh, you do your, your you do your walk in the sun. Maybe you exercise, then you meditate, and then you get a you know some form of test to try to measure serotonin levels. They might be high, mm -hmm. right? So it's yeah, it, it it it's it's a it's very um. You want to be very skeptical of the entire idea around uh, serotonin or certain brain chemicals or even thinking about depression as a brain disorder. Like just eliminate that thinking right now. We're talking about high levels of complexity when you're talking about the human experience from a biological, psychological, social, spiritual, nutritional perspective. Yep. And uh, we are a mystery in so many ways. Mm -hmm. The human experience is a, is a mystery. We haven't even begun to evolve to the stage where we can understand the complexity of such an experience. With that being said, um, this did bring about some national recognition. And as you would expect, it became politicized, unfortunately. You're the one who turned me on to the, the initial the article. article yeah. yeah, tell me about like how you found that and... Um. I think I was having my morning breakfast coffee over that weekend and uh, Apple News and it got served to me probably because of my my search uh, in, in recent history has been focused on this industry. So they probably saw this as a relevant story for me and they kind of got bumped up and promoted. And I was interested, why would the Rolling Stone be covering this topic? And when I was reading the uh, the Rolling Stone article, it made me start to identify some key words that I was interpreting as an attempt to miscredit the authors of the paper, their position on things in the past, and 
um, and ultimately what they were communicating in that Rolling Stone, uh, and actually in the uh, in the umbrella uh, report. So what was being communicated in the report was being misinterpreted, and they were looking for other things that these authors had said to almost align them with a very here in the United States, a, uh, a very conservative right-wing movement and trying to tie it to uh, gun violence. And that, I thought, was um, an attempt to get people to ignore what this was trying to communicate in the first place. Yeah, it was in very poor taste. Um, not surprising because we've, abro- we've broached topics such as this um, on our podcast previously, especially how scientific ideas have been hijacked and, and politicized. Um, but this is really disappointing because although I don't know Dr. Moncrief personally, she's from the UK. Yeah. I'm very familiar with her work. And she is highly respected. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is in no way the type of professional who is provocative. Um, she's quite measured and scientific. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly presents as as very compassionate. I believe she lives by that guiding principle of first do no harm. There is no doubt Mm -hmm. that she is a principled individual of the highest ethical order. And she did, um, we'll get into this in a second here. Um, If you, if you look at any of her work, she's a, she's a physician. She's actually a psychiatrist, right? And she speaks about this, you know, this drug-centered model um, versus like a brain-diseased model. And she talks about realistically and scientifically what the drugs actually do and why some people may report a benefit. But she unfortunately had to respond to that Rolling Stone article, and we'll um, include that in our show summary. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm bringing up the article right now. She's pretty much uh, associated in the article as, as some right-wing ideology, yeah. right? So jo- I'll just read the, um, the title of the article. Who is the psychiatrist behind the antidepressant study taking over right-wing media? Mm-hmm. And listen, I've been um, looking at the various articles uh, around the world, and uh, they're certainly not limited to any political political perspective no not at all um so it says joanna uh, joanna moncrief has spent two decades questioning the efficacy of efficacy of ssris and more recently she's gone after covid19 vaccine mandates why connect this study to covid19 vaccine mandates well it's been politicized politicized and trying to use the the words uh you know misinformation we've hijacked the word science among other things mm-hmm. and so like it, trying to communicate a message to people that if you question the whatever the narrative that's that's presented, then um, you're a science denier, mm-hmm. and ultimately that's they're trying to discredit people um, in some ways as if they're you know conspiracy theorists. Um, but the the truth of the matter is, uh, Doctor Moncrief has always been clear about just presenting data as it exists. And then trying to inform people of what that data means. Mm-hmm. Right? And the concern about this article is that they misrepresented a lot of her ideas. Mm-hmm. And in some situations, they were just flat out lies. And 
Rolling Stone magazine is a pretty influential cultural magazine in the United States. And there's, there's no doubt that this comes across as a, a pharma hit piece. I'm going to try to find um, a... I'm going to try to get some quotes from psychiatrists that they tried to um, support the previous narrative. Um, this paper is not coming in a vacuum, says Ewas Aftab, a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at Case Western University, who previously interviewed Moncrief in a 2020 Psychiatric Times article. It's coming with two decades of work in which Moncrief has consistently challenged the characterization of depression as a mental illness. That's a lie. Dr. Moncrief very much communicates that being severely depressed is a condition that requires intervention. Mm -hmm. So they're shifting the, the language. And if I'm correctly interpreting some of the things she said, she actually does use uh, medications uh, in a very controlled way to uh, in crisis situations when appropriate. Yeah, and she's gonna. It's a, she believes it's a decision that needs to be made between a doctor and a patient based on best on best available evidence in which they're provided the potential risks and the potential benefits, and it's carefully monitored. Yeah. And so she's very clear about the potential benefits. Mm-hmm. They tend to be two things. Okay, one when you take an antidepressant. There is, um, you're inducing a chemical imbalance. So you're inducing a physiological reaction. So your body's going to react to it. The most notable one is blunting of emotion. Mm -hmm. Numbing. Numbing. Blunting, numbing. And that includes both positive emotions and negative emotions. Sean, for for a small percentage of people, especially if someone's feeling intensity of negative emotions... That might be initially interpreted as relief. Mm -hmm. So we have to communicate that, that this could numb emotions, much like other drugs. For some people, if you smoke marijuana or you drink alcohol, they can have similar effects. Everyone is different. I was actually uh, listening to a podcast, a Joe Rogan podcast, this this particular uh, weekend, where um, someone that we've... um, you know, we've listened to previously and, and, and quoted on this podcast. Um, geez, I'm forgetting his name. <laughs> That's okay. What was the message? The, the message was um, that for, for some people, for alcohol, it impacts their dopamine receptors to uh, differently. Mm-hmm. And so they become highly elated and can continue to drink for long periods of time with real elevated mood. While other people, it's a sedative. You know, so for me, I can have a couple drinks. Mm-hmm. And it's relaxing. Yeah. But if I have too many, I get tired. I'm the same way. I, I, I'll have, you know, at most two drinks now. Yeah, that's, that's what, two is my, you know. It's my, my magic number. My comfort, yeah. 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 So everyone's different and we know that, right? Mm-hmm. So um, there might be some people who take an antidepressant. It might be in a high agitated state or, or in a lot of emotional pain. That some emotional blunting initially could have some potential like positive Interpreted as as an improvement. An improvement. Mm -hmm. The other thing that she's very clear of is that they provide some people hope. Mm. So it is the the placebo response. The belief that 
that I have found something to, to help me. It's an exhale. Huh? <sighs> I'm finally doing something about this. And she recognizes how powerful that is. Mm-hmm. The thing that makes her really separate from many of, the, of her colleagues in the greater field and the medical establishment is she is very clear about what the risks are. Mm-hmm. You know, she'll be open that with this drug-centered model that in time the brain's going to adapt as, and it'll have an effect on the body, right? Whether it's effect on your metabolic health or your gut microbiota or your brain, a mysterious organ that we're still learning about. Um, in time, it certainly does increase the susceptibility and potentially a greater op- chance of relapsing into further depressive episodes. It does increase suicidality. As we had on previous podcasts, we're learning about evidence regarding specific, um, you know, like gen- genetic components and like how how drugs are metabolized differently. So bottom line is they affect people differently. And the overall research, really, it doesn't distinguish it much from a placebo response, maybe some short-term response. So bottom line is this, is that she's... Um, she is not the person that was presented in this article. And it, it brings up a lot of concern for me because um, that, that tells me that who's ever influencing this article, right, who's ever driving it, certainly has an agenda, and that agenda isn't science-based, and that agenda isn't looking out for the well-being, the health and the well-being of the populace. Yeah, I agree. I agree. If anything, it just, it separates. You know, we've talked about putting people in the two camps. It's, it, it was establishing what camp are you a part of? That's, that was how I was responding to, to reading that piece. And she's responded to it also um, because it was getting so many eyeballs. She felt like she really had it to, or had to. And this particular research study right now is like the most downloaded research study. Um, it's been, what, like two or three weeks, and there's been millions of downloads. So, of course, it's getting lots of attraction, as it should. And she has taken a very uh, appropriate uh, path towards how to communicate what it means. Um, I don't know where you want to continue to go in this discussion, but I read a couple of the other articles, and I wrote down a couple statements and I don't know if you, I could read through them and you can either say true, false, or we can comment on them. Sure. What are your thoughts? You can do it? Yep. Okay. So I've already said that, you know, I've interpreted this entire study as an if-then statement. You know, if the drugs were developed to um, improve a serotonin uh, deficiency, uh, that's been proven not to be uh, true, then... You know, what do the drugs do? That was how she left it. So number one is that um, the the research doesn't show that drugs aren't effective. They only rule out one possible way the drugs might work. Well, I think we have decades of studies, Sean, that, that show the drugs are not effective. Okay. So... Too many physicians are unwilling to take that leap mm-hmm. because so many people are on them. And the moment you really proclaim that and you were somebody who wrote 
the prescriptions and have been part of that treatment for decades, I think you're putting yourself in a precarious position. So I'm willing to say that because I've evaluated the research. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't believe the drugs are antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't think they have an effect on antidepressants. Something that's real on, on, anti, on depression. Something that's really interesting. I, I got into an old article um, regarding what untreated depressive episodes look like. Okay. okay. And it's fascinating because what it informs us is that depression has always been episodic. So there is a usually a time limit to them. And in particular, it's when certain conditions resolve in your life, right? It could be loss of a job, a breakup, um, a down period that exists. You're adapting. When the conditions resolve themselves and your natural coping abilities allow you to overcome them, it's time limited. So I think something like in his research... 85% of all depressive episodes resolve themselves within 12 months. Most of them within three to six. Mm -hmm. So that means according to his research, and I'll get that to you to put in the show summary because I don't have the title with right now. I did post it on my Twitter account this week, this weekend. What that means is, that people are just inherently resilient. They're going to overcome those challenges on their own. And if you did not intervene, they're going to improve. I believe that to be true also just based on this business. You know, people call. We're not able to get to everybody right away. They go on the waiting list. And for people that get past um, 90 days, when we start calling them, they say, I no longer need your services. Yep. That's absolutely the case. Did they get an appointment elsewhere? No, I'm just, I'm okay now. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah. And therefore, this concept of um, weightful watching is so important. Yeah, we've talked about that before also. Yep. So about, there's going to be, it just doesn't deny the fact that depression in itself can be impairing mm-hmm. and is a, is a health condition to take seriously. So there's about 15% of people who are, it's not going to be episodic, right? It's going to be prolonged. And there's probably various reasons for that. And it's our responsibility in this field to identify how to intervene with them in a way that is most effective, but also respects their autonomy and provides them the information because they're vulnerable, right? They're vulnerable for, for help. So Sean, I don't believe that um, antidepressants work per se, Mm -hmm. but I am willing to say for a small percentage of people, they interpret them for a period of time as beneficial. That leads to my statement number two. Okay. Research suggests antidepressants work only a bit better than placebo. I'm going to say that's false. Okay. Now I want to expand upon that because in a, in a study where it shows a little bit better than placebo, it's the law of averages within those that are a little bit better than placebo, there are some that are greater and some that are less than. You put them together, the combined shows a little bit better than. Variability. So so when you're talking about that in terms of it helps some people, the small percentage of those that it truly has helped would be into that group that is is better than placebo, but most are at the placebo level. 
Yeah, so let me address that. Mm-hmm. Number one, we're talking about better is a statistical difference. An interpretation. It's a statistical difference on a, uh, a symptom checklist. Yes. The, the best available evidence will say that statistical dif- difference is not significant enough to have any clinically relevant improvement in quality of life. Yes, and I've taken the checklist, and I know some of it is subjective based on how you're feeling at that moment, based on how tired you are, did you get a good night's sleep? All that stuff is, is factored into that. So, yeah. The other thing that's important to note is that the, and this is fact, that the drug companies buried the studies that didn't demonstrate an effect, mm-hmm. meaning they didn't publish them. Mm-hmm. And that's called um, publication bias, that you, you publish the studies that demonstrate an effect and you don't, and the ones that did not support your, your intervention, you put it all together, my belief and this is from my examination of the literature, is that they are a placebo effect with side effects. Got it. Statement number three. Mm-hmm. There are many different expressions of depression that come from a wide array of causal factors and present themselves differently from person to person. Absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In fact, the idea of depression is just some social construct and an umbrella term, mm-hmm. right? So what one person might communicate as depression is just a use of language and it's our limitations of, of language. And while another person may deny that exact same experience is depression at all, it's a label. It's trying to communicate something that we are unable to investigate through direct observation. So that leads to my next statement. There is no single treatment approach that works for everyone with depression. Absolutely true. Okay. So um, I was encouraged because as I was, I stumbled upon something that's happening in the UK, and it may have just been in the last year or so. UK doctors have been told they should offer therapy, exercise, mindfulness, or meditation to people with less severe cases of depression before trying medication. I mean, I think for for you who's not been involved in this field, um, that sounds encouraging, but I'm con- it goes back to the language again. Less okay. severe depression, and how does one even define that? That's, that right? would be a doctor and a client understanding the circumstances and working closely, kind of like what Joanna Moncrief does, where you have a small percentage that she feels could truly benefit in a short period of time. Yeah, it's, it's a huge challenge because there is probably a very, very small, minute percentage of people who've been assigned the label of depression who are impaired in ways that many of our listeners do not understand. That could be catatonic states, um, the in- just not leaving their home, mm-hmm. crying all the time, and each day is a fight to get through without ending their life, right? To me, that is severe, right? And I think those people who are struggling to that extent and have not been helped by other means should have every right to go through any treatments that are available, including antidepressants or innovative drug treatments or 
nutritional diets or whatever it takes, right? Like mm. you only got one life to live maybe. And uh, so therefore, yeah, whatever it takes. And I think in order to ease the suffering of people, we should be, you know, creative and work with them collaboratively. But I also, it's really important for me to communicate that that is not the percentage of people. Most people who are receiving antidepressants and mental health treatment don't even meet that criteria. I think we have a distorted idea of what is actually severe depression. The majority of therapists out there who are working in community-based settings are dealing with mild to moderate. Even some of their more challenging or difficult cases still don't reach that threshold. So it's just been an expansion mm-hmm. of uh, like the diagnostic uh, severity range that you know too many people are being identified as having severe depression when in fact um, that's not what others are experiencing but it's challenging because then you don't want to ever invalidate someone's you can be you can be in a lot of emotional pain and not be severely depressed and those lines have been blurred Mm -hmm. um in in our society and then you'll just see a lot of nonsense out there that say who are you to determine yes what is severe depression Mm -hmm. or people are hiding it and uh and they're doing a really good job of like hiding their emotional experience. Well, how do we study it? And how do we have a science base around it if professionals aren't able to distinguish between what is most impairing versus what might be a range that exists and, and many of us might face in, at one point in our, in our lives? Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, I would imagine there's a number of individuals that are severely depressed and fail to recognize and admit it and go about their lives just numb to that fact, right? Yeah, that goes into coping, right? So there are wide range of, of coping styles and, and one, one coping style is avoidance. Um, and another coping style is, you know, reflects around a denial of, of the experience. Not everyone is so connected and in touch to what they're feeling and they're experiencing and don't even have that concept of depression in their, in their viewpoint. Like mm-hmm. they, their perspective doesn't even allow them to understand what they're experiencing in that way. So that's that there are many different forms of expression. That is one where others are very expressive. Yeah. Can I read a a quote? I was looking for this quote earlier from this. I've been stalling. So yes, I'm glad you found (laughs) it. (laughs) And this is what's disingenuous. And this is what's concerning. Um, I'm going to read the paragraph. Within the medical community, the paper's conclusions were nothing new. David Hellerstein, professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University Medical Center and director of Columbia's Depression Evaluation Service, explains that the serotonin hypothesis, the idea that depression is caused by low serotonin levels, is a quaint and oversimplified shorthand that has been superseded by other explanations in clinical practice for decades now. He says the the review was largely met with yawns from the psychiatric community. In reading it, I was kind of thinking, wow, next she'll tackle the discrediting of the black bile theory of depression, he tells Rolling Stones. You smug? I read that too. You smug clown. <laughs> I right now am I want you to come on to this podcast, David Hellerson. I will reach out to you because that is such an offensive comment. Because still, 
on major websites around your profession, they'll still talk about it in the possibility of a chemical chemical imbalance. Most people who have depression and are seeking out psychiatric medications still believe that to be true. Our physicians in community-based settings are talking to clients about serotonin and depression. And that's how it's being treated. In the, in the psychiatric community, you're still treating it with SSRIs. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. You are talking about and associating the chemical imbalance theory with discrediting of the black bile theory of depression? How can you put yourself out there in a major news outlet like Rolling Stone with such a stupid statement. That's embarrassing. And that is why I have such a challenge working in this field. When you make a statement like that, you are a professor of clinical psychiatry at a renowned university at Columbia. Um, so here's the one thing that I, I like about Joanna Moncrief is the published paper came out on the 20th and she wrote a piece that she was directing everybody to uh, where she takes it basically step by step. And she says, basically it was the title of her article. I actually um, did a social media post and it's how to take the news that depression has not been shown to be caused by a chemical imbalance. Uh, That to me is a very responsible way of, of handling this and not attacking anyone but purely just to help those who may in, misinterpret. Um, so I, I think this is a good way to end it. Not reading her thing, but we've already touched on the importance of uh, informed consent, and people reading the literature for themselves, understanding what it's communicated, and then recognizing that the next steps are not to independently make any decisions, but to consult with physicians in a responsible way to determine what their next steps may be, because everybody's depressive situation is unique and everyone's an individual their situations vary drastically so how how can we responsibly communicate what the next steps are for anyone who may be listening to this i'll tell you what it's um you're using the right word being responsible Mm -hmm. and that's the difference between someone of uh dr joanna moncrete's stature and character versus the gentleman from columbia yeah is that she is going to continue this process on how to communicate it responsibly to to clients. She also understands, and I think through empathy, that a lot of people are going to be hurt Mm -hmm. and feel a lot of resentment Mm -hmm. and distrust towards the greater mental health field, which I'm a part of. And so she recognizes it with compassion and she helps people to better understand the complexity of what might be happening to them and gives them a more thorough and clear directive on what these drugs actually do and what are the potential risks. Ultimately, that's what we're asking for. Mm-hmm. We're just asking for honesty. Mm-hmm. We're asking to be able to communicate to people, hey, if you're going to put something into your body, or you're going to start any form of treatment or medical intervention that you're aware of what the potential negative outcomes exist. 
You might choose to do it with those risks just based on how you're feeling right now, but it is your choice. Now I'm here with you. And that's just, that's not the way it's been in psychiatry. Psychiatry has, has uh, made statements that are, you know, really what are ridiculous come at this point there, you know, they're going to be reflected on as, as absolutely ridiculous such as like considering what you're experiencing or feeling to be similar to insulin for diabetes, you know, associating these drugs as, as if they're life-saving. There's so many messages that we've been exposed to over the last 30 years that, that are just inaccurate, they're harmful, and they're certainly not standing the test of scientific scrutiny. So we have that responsibility, and I like that word. Uh, this podcast has to be responsible. I'm certainly aware that people are listening and they've been on these SSRIs for potentially decades. They might even prescribe them to their own children. The goal of this is to get you to become more educated and aware and then to make, do your own research and then to take the appropriate steps that are in the best interest of yourself or, or your loved ones. It's important. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.